Good morning, Sailorville family. It's great to see you today. I want to direct your attention to the screen, and I'd like you to try this quote on for size. Now shouts louder, but later lasts longer. That's a tongue-twisting tale of truth we do well to remember. Now shouts louder, but later lasts longer. It really is a testimony to what we call delayed gratification, what the Bible would call self-control. And it's applicable to so many areas of life. In this microwave mentality we have, I want what I want, and I want it now. You know, it starts young. In the younger generation, when those hormones are raging and there's this urge to merge, and God says, now you hold on, because I've got a design. I intend sex to be in marriage because that's the way I've designed you. In a broader way, all of us here today struggle with stuff in our lives. Some of you are in this service and you're struggling with something and you're demanding your way. You're praying and you say, Lord, I want my way now. I want my will. Rather, in prayer, we ought to surrender to God's will revealed in His time, best exemplified by Jesus, perhaps the best prayer in Scripture, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, not my will, Father, but, but your will be done. That kind of mentality, I think, is really illustrated well in the life of Anne Graham Lotz. She's the second child of the late evangelist Billy Graham, a great communicator in her own right. She recently revealed that she's battling with breast cancer. In fact, diagnosed just last month. She's a godly woman, and she's trusting God. And I want to show you what she went on record as saying, and asked for prayer for God to heal her in, quote, whichever way he deems would bring him the most glory, whether with or without surgery, or through the greater miracle of the resurrection. Meaning she said, it's okay if God calls me home. She insists she's trusting God, and she added, God has a plan, a purpose. I can't see yet, and, and maybe I won't see in this life, but, but I know that God is going to see me through. Somebody here today needs to hear this message because of what you're going through, and you need to hear the promise. God is going to see you through by His grace and by His power through His Word. Her attitude is one we would do well to replicate and it really is illustrated in the attitude of the Apostle Paul in our text for today. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to join me. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, as we continue our series on rejoicing in the joyful life that Christ gives us. I've entitled this message rather simply, uh, A Better Way to Pray. Do you ever struggle in knowing how to pray? I, I do. I confess to you readily, it's not as easy as it seems. And I want to give you a little opinion quiz. Uh, I'd like you to choose between two options. Neither of these is necessarily wrong or sinful, but I think you'll see that in each case, one of these ways of praying is better than the other. I'll, I'll give you three examples, and I'm going to ask you to think with me now. Here's example one. Lord, be with me. Or... Lord, because you live in me, I ask you to control me. Example two, 
Lord, take away this problem. Or, Lord, please teach me what I'm supposed to learn about you and about myself in this problem. Example three, Lord, I want to know why this happened. Versus, Lord, I rest in the fact that, that you know why this happened, and I will trust in you. So what do you think, class? Which is the superior way to pray? I think you'd agree with me that in each case, the second prayer is the more mature request. We back up to those three examples. We understand that immature prayers are uncertain of relationship. You ever find yourself, Lord, be with me, or praying for somebody else, Lord, be with them. If you're a child of God and they're a child of God, didn't Jesus say to us, I will never leave you or forsake you? So we really don't need to pray, Lord, be with us, because he's always with us. Hmm. And then immature prayers prize the physical over the spiritual, what I can feel and touch and see. And they make immediate demands. This is not the case in Paul's prayer for the Philippians. You'll see it as I read the text now, and here we go in verse 9. Paul, for the Philippian believers, says that, and it is my prayer that your love, it's the Greek word agape, it's that self-sacrificing kind of love illustrated by God's gift of his son Jesus on the cross. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more. We need to be known by our love. How, how do we do that, Paul? How do we pray this way? With knowledge, that is Bible-based knowledge. The best prayers are based out of Scripture. We pray Scripture back to God. And all discernment. And what's the purpose, Paul? So that you may approve what is excellent. And so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What does that mean? The day of Christ is a reference to the rapture and to that coming time when God's children or a part of his church will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema, to give an account of the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, and it'll be an awards ceremony for God's children. And he goes on, we ought to pray that each of God's children will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. If you're truly in Christ, righteousness will pervade your life and to the glory and praise of God. Now, a question I have to ask myself, and I have have you ask yourself is, do, do these sound like things you would pray? If you're really honest. I'm not talking about the verbiage, but I am talking about the content. Uh, Paul's prayer for these Philippians can be simply outlined. Here it is, number one. Paul prayed that their love would abound. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, because you love one another. Pray that those around you, including your own family, will love the Lord more. Pray number two, Paul prayed that their testimony would be strong, were to be lights in a dark world. And then in verse 11, Paul prayed that their fruit would grow. This is how we should pray. There's several modifiers in these three requests. Each modifier reflects something that is better. Humor me here for a moment. Everybody say the word better. Better. Now you got it. That's what we're talking about today. A better way to pray. As Pastor Pat puts it, let's do better at what we do best. 
So going back through our outline, there is a better love through discernment. There's a better life through diligence and a better legacy through delight. Now, I want to explain the implications of this better way of praying by unpacking five key words in our text that illustrate how to pray a better way. Here we go. I'll put it on the screen if you're taking notes. We start with the word discernment in verse 9. We get our English word aesthetic from this Greek word. It means that we have spiritual optics. We look at life through God's biblical worldview. It means we have a vision for that which is spiritually beautiful. We all have an appreciation for what is beautiful physically. We need to have that discernment in the spiritual as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, two choices here. Yeah, that will enhance God's glory better. That'll make God look better. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Then there's the word approve, also in verse 10, and a saying term for the testing of supposed precious metals to see if they're genuine. I mean, is, is this the real deal or is this fool's gold? Then there's the word excellent also in verse 10 from the word meaning to differ, implying choosing between the better of two options. It's like when you go to the optometrist, you're not sure if you need a new prescription for your glasses. And you go in there and he or she sets you down in the chair and put some of those letters in front of you. And what do they say to you when they put up the options there? What do they say? One or two? Do I have a witness? Yeah. One or two. Sometimes you say, I don't know. Do it again. Okay. One or two. Which is clearer? What has the better visual acuity? One or two? Do you know in the Christian life we are regularly confronted with decisions on a daily basis? One or two. Which option is better? Hmm. The question for Christians is not, and you'll sometimes hear this, how close to the line can I get without sinning? Ooh. How close to the line can I get without sinning? It ought to rather be, what can I lay aside to run my race better for God's glory? Hebrews 12, verse 1, laying aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We want to follow his template, his example. Then also in verse 10, there's the word pure, which is the word in New King James rendered sincere. From Latin sinacera, which means without wax. So the word pure means genuine originally. It meant to be tested by sunlight. It goes back to the practice in that day of making pottery, clay pottery. Someone was in the business, they would get their clay, put it on the potter's wheel, and they would fashion it to make the vessel they wanted to produce for resale purposes. And when they finished making it just the way they wanted, they'd take it over to the kiln, over to the oven, and they'd harden it with heat. And then they would paint the vessel, and they would gloss it over, and they'd put it up for sale. Now, certain unscrupulous types 
after they fashioned their vessel and put it into the kiln and they pulled it out, they noticed that there was a crack in the clay pot. And without anybody looking, they'd take wax and they'd fill in the crack and then they'd paint over it and then gloss it and sell it as if it was without defect. But people who were smart to what they were doing would take each vessel in the store and they'd go outside and they'd hold it up to the sunlight and the sunlight would show through the cracks that were filled with wax if they had a defect. So here's the imagery that Paul is using here. He said our lives need to be pure or sincere without wax, without hypocrisy. We need to be the real deal, genuine. For that we must pray. And then finally in verse 10, there's the word blameless. This speaks about relational integrity that keeps one from being a stumbling block to other believers. Do you ever pray, Lord, please help me to be an example to those around me, those closest to me? I have to do that regularly. I, for those who don't know me, I'm not up here usually. I'm, I'm the counseling pastor here at the church. And I counsel a lot of people, including a lot of people with addictions. And one of the leading addictions is alcohol addiction, with which I deal. And, and I'm just going to share with you a conviction brought has brought me to. This isn't necessarily the case for you. This is between you and God. I'm simply talking about me with what I do. I've come to the conviction that I cannot drink alcoholic beverages lest I become a stumbling block to those I'm trying to help. And by extension, I think sometimes in our families, if someone is struggling, we, though we might have the right, say, you know what, I'm going to lay that aside so I'm not a stumbling block to the person that I'm trying to minister to in my family. That's just, just an example. So as I, as I think about these things, I, I think we're really praying James 1, 5, Lord, give me wisdom. I need wisdom to know how to live. We're talking today about a better way to pray. And while I've exegeted the passage, I want to now make a an application that I, I think will affect many of you here today. I want to make the application to our families. Uh, many of you know that not only am I the counseling pastor, I'm the family ministries pastor. So I have a passion for families. I love families, dads and moms and kids and grandkids. I love families, and I'm constantly trying to save families. That's what I do here. I want to help people with their family life. The Philippians were Paul's spiritual family. He'd led some of these people to faith in Christ. And so when we read how he prayed for them, we can learn about how we should pray for our own kids and our own grandkids. Uh, this month of September is my anniversary month of ministry. So this month I'm celebrating 44 years of ministry in the gospel. And I can tell you far and away in all the churches I've pastored, and that's true of this church as well, the number one burden the number one ache in the hearts of God's people is wayward children and grandchildren. Oh, the tears behind the scenes of those who are agonizing over little ones or grown-ups who walked away from the faith. Do I have a witness? First two services 
Lots of witnesses too. If this really is our heartache, shouldn't it be reflected in our prayers? So I want to ask you, really, right now, I'd like you to answer this. Do you pray passionately and specifically by name for your kids and grandkids every day? Again, this morning in my devotion, before I came, I prayed for all my kids. I prayed for all my grandkids by name. And what the little guys, <laughs> I'm praying that they'll marry someone in the Lord. I'm praying for the salvation of their mates still to come. <laughs> Because I want the faith to go on to the next generation and the next. Now, if you are as burdened as I am about your family, and you kind of have a very good idea of where your kids are, even if they're still at home, we, we ought to cry out in desperation. There ought to be a certain desperation to pray well. I like what Jill Briscoe said, make me formidable on my knees. I love the boldness of Jim Simula when he truthfully says, my prayers make a difference. Is that braggadocia? I don't think so. Not when James tells us, chapter 5 or 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? It avails much. It makes a difference. Whether we see immediate answers or not, we must pray in faith, and we must keep on praying until our dying breath for the generations to come in our family. Men ought always to pray and not to give up, Jesus said, Luke 18, verse 1. So let me go home with you today. Let me listen to your table, Grace. Let me listen to your prayers before you go to bed tonight. What will you pray about? For whom? And what will you say? And will it reflect Paul's better way to pray? How desperate are you? Are you as earnest as Paul was in his prayers? A pastor friend of mine, his name is Dr. Bruce Peters. From my ministry in Kentucky days, I knew Bruce, a godly man. He lost his little eight-year-old son years ago, tragically. And then in just the last two or three years, he lost his beloved wife of several decades, her name, Nancy, through brain cancer. Recently, his only remaining child, his single daughter, Meredith, answered the call of God and went off to the mission field abroad, across the Atlantic in Portugal. Question. Bruce is alone. Should he pray that Meredith can come back home to America to live close to him? Should he pray that? I got to bear my heart with you here today just a little bit as I talk about my own family. I relate to Bruce's story because I have a daughter who together with her husband and their three little rugrats, five, three, and one, who are missionaries in Germany. And I miss them. I have a son in pastoral ministry who together with his wife Laura and their little Eden who's 20 months, he, he's the small group's pastor at Northridge Church in Rochester, New York. And last time I checked, New York was a long way away. Just for good measure, I've got a son who's not in career ministry, but uh, he's got a heart for God. He's a veterinarian, but he's passionate about 
church planting in, in a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, together with his wife and his two little ones. He's been a leader. He's been serving Christ in that church, albeit a great distance away from dad and mom. Now, I must say to you, thankfully, I do have one child here locally. <laughs> her name is Jen and her husband Dave, and there are three here are a part of our church, and we relish the fact that we can live at least close to one of them. But I confess that I ache to see my kids and my grandkids far away far more often than I do because I'm a family man, and I love them. To be honest, when our missionary daughter and her husband, after their most recent furlough, returned to the field, ironically, they left for the field this summer on July the 4th, Independence Day, kind of an appropriate day, you know? Leaving homeland, independent of dad and mom, they went back to the field. And I confess to you, when they, when they left, I wept. I love them. And there's a sense in which every time we say goodbye, it feels a bit like the first time. My fast pastor friend Bruce wrote this on Facebook when his daughter, Meredith, returned to Portugal herself this summer. I love this, because this is biblical. Bruce said, children are a gift. They're not a right. Children are a trust, not a possession. We must learn the test of surrender. It is simple, but it's not easy. If we grasp what God puts into our hands, then it will hurt if he removes it. But if we hold all he gives us with an open hand, it hurts less if he takes it away. Parents in the Bible learned and modeled this principle. Moses' mother, Jochebed. Hannah with her little Samuel, David and Bathsheba with a newborn stilled by death. Is my friend Bruce begrudging the fact that his daughter is abroad? Is he angry? Is he frustrated? No, no, he, he rejoices. He's encouraged in his aloneness. Look at what he said. My faith and not just my DNA survives in my daughter. I love that. I want my faith to survive to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. But we must pray for that to happen by the power of the Spirit of God. I love his attitude. It's the attitude to which all Christ followers are called. Now listen to me. We are a gospel-centered church, right? You hear that phrase a lot around here. That means we need to be gospel-centered families that pray gospel-centered prayers. So let me ask you, honestly, would you rejoice if your child, your grandchild, were led by the Spirit of God to serve the Lord abroad in missions? Would you rejoice? Would you pray that God might use your children, even if it meant you might Lose them from close proximity to you. And if your children are still in the pipeline, I mean, they're still young, they're still at home, would you pray that they will discern that serving Christ is better than making money? That it's better than enjoying the American dream? 
That's a better way to pray. And for some of you, the question is even more basic. Do your children, do your grandchildren even know Christ? Oftentimes I find family giving the benefit of the doubt that there's a big question mark and there's no fruit illustrating that there's genuine life. If your kids, your grandkids are not converted, your prayers must express the sum and substance that they will turn from self-trust to Christ-trust and personalize the death and resurrection of Christ for themselves. They will never merit heaven through a borrowed faith. God has no grandchildren, for we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Every generation must trust in Christ for themselves, including your kids and mine. Would you pray that God will open their hearts to hear the words of Jesus? You must be born again. If any man will enter the kingdom of God, see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. In a moment, I want to show you a video. I think you'll find very moving. Well, let me tell you a little story from 1 Kings 17 first. It illustrates what I'm trying to say today. Anybody ever hear of the prophet Elijah? Great man of God, powerful, Mount Carmel, fire from heaven. But before that ever happened, this man who James 5 says was a man of like passions like us, I mean, had the same kind of nature, he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Whoa! And he prayed again and it rained. But in that time where it didn't rain, it, it was really a time of famine and he was starving himself and God led him, ironically, into the homeland of the wicked Jezebel and to a city called Zarephath. And God said, I'm going to feed you Mr. Elijah, through the kindness of this widow woman who has just one little boy and a house, no husband, and she's almost in starvation mode herself. And so the prophet went to her, and in fact, he said, God has told me, you feed me, and he'll feed you. But this is my last meal. I'm getting ready to die, my boy and me. You feed me, I'll feed you, God says. She obeyed. And the jar of oil and the barrel of flour did not run out until the famine was over. Well, this woman was so kind to provide a prophet's chamber for Elijah upstairs in her house, this little dwelling. This little boy she had one day, not long after all these events, he got sick and he died. And mama was heartbroken. And she went to the prophet, what's going on, my boy? My one human possession, he's gone. And Elijah went to God and he prayed. And then he did something symbolic. I love this. He said, Mama, give me, the, give me the little guy. And he took him out of her arms and he went up to his prophet's chamber upstairs and he laid the little boy on the bed and he prayed. And then he did something very symbolic. He stretched himself out three times over the top of this child and prayed for life to come back. It wasn't mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. No, it was symbolic. Three is the number of completion. Elijah knew that only God could bring life back to this boy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
One God in three persons. God, only you can raise this child. So he stretches out, meaning every ounce of his being was into it. He prayed passionately, every part of him. God, bring breath back into his lungs. Bring him back to life. And God answered. And the boy lived. And he brought him back downstairs to his mother. Do you feel that pain of a child in your home without spiritual life? You're not alone. I want you to watch this video from the aforementioned Jim Cimbala, who is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York City, as he tells the story of his wayward daughter, Chrissy. Someone started crying here when I mentioned my daughter. I happen to see your face. So that tells me that maybe I should leave on this note. You know, when I went through that two and a half year long nightmare with my daughter, I said this at dinner last night. One night at my lowest, my wife had a hysterectomy during that time. Hormonally, she got thrown off, estrogen levels. She started talking of not wanting to live anymore and taking her life. I'm pastoring a church, starting other churches, renting Radio City Music Hall. My daughter's not there. I cry through Christmas Eve. It's not easy. The Lord one night at about 1 o'clock in the morning, 1.30 on a Saturday night as I was praying, said, I'm going to bring Chrissy back. He had stopped me talking to her for months and just said, you've tried manipulation, money, you know, when your daughter's drifting, you try to fix it. Do I get a witness here? You try to fix it, right? But God, you know, the, the harder I tried, the worse she got. I tried everything. Carol was going through her struggles. I thought I was going to lose my mind at times, the grief of Chrissy, then my wife, not the woman I married any longer. After not talking to her for Five months. Knew she was in the city at this time in a Tuesday night prayer meeting. Someone sent a note up and said, I feel impressed. We're supposed to pray for your daughter tonight. I waited, called an associate pastor at the appropriate moment, had him lead out in prayer. The church turned into a labor room. Ever been in the labor room? You know, their love for me, for Carol, their love for Chrissy, the Holy Spirit helping them. I didn't shed many tears that night because all my tear ducts were dry. You, you cry so much, there's nothing left. I came home. My wife wasn't there. I came home. She was sitting at the kitchen table. She had a cup of coffee. I sat there. She said, how'd the day go? I said, it's over, Carol. She said, what's over? I said, it's over. Chrissy's coming back. She said, how do you know? I said, if there's a God in heaven, she's coming back. If you were there and heard them pray, it's over. Just about the next morning, I'm shaving. Carol bursts in the bathroom. She says, Chrissy's downstairs. I wipe the shaving cream off. Wait, I wipe the shaving. That means time out. Uh, I wipe the shaving cream off my 
eye of my face. I go downstairs, and there's my beautiful daughter, model child grown up. She's on her hands and her knees, crying. I lift her up to me. The minute I saw her eyes, I knew she had changed. She was the girl that I remember. She said, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against Mommy. I've sinned against myself. Who would you have praying for me last night? I said, what do you mean, Chrissy? She said, just tell me, who would you have praying for me? Well, we did pray for you. The church prayed for you. She said, because in the middle of the night, God gave me a dream, a vision. I saw myself going 95 miles an hour toward this abyss, and he caught me right on the edge. And instead of yelling at me, Daddy, he loved me, and he said he still cared for me and had a plan for my life. And now she's the wife of a pastor in Chicago, doing great work for the Lord, got the same gifting her mother has. Not trained, not trained, not trained, doesn't know what she's doing. She just keeps doing it every Sunday like my wife. God recovers stolen property. Here's one thing the Lord, I felt, say to me. Wherever I send you, where you feel prompted, you tell them what I did for your daughter. You tell them, I'm going to make you an example that God does answer prayer. Let's close our eyes quick. If you're here, you got a daughter, son, granddaughter, grandson in trouble. Away from the Lord. You know they're not where they need to be. I don't need to know the details. Just stand right now. You got a son or a daughter, grandson or granddaughter you're concerned about. Stand up. We're continuing the invitation right now. You got a son, you got a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter. They're away from God. You know it. Your heart is breaking. We need to pray. There's a God in heaven who hears prayer. Would you stand up right now? You want prayer for your children. You know who you are. God is touching you. It's across our congregation. It's all across America. You need to be unashamed of asking God for help in your time of need. We need to pray. Think about your kids. Are they at home? And you know their, their heart isn't right toward God. They've never been saved. Yeah, they're still under your root, but they're not saved. Would you pray that God will grip them and grab them and change them? Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you're burdened for a family member, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, would you, would you stand? Now, the rest of you who are sitting, we're a sympathetic, empathetic church, and we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want to ask you to look around you, people who are standing, would you stand and would you place your hand upon their shoulder? Just gather around and support them. Your hand on their shoulder. Just find somebody. You can move a little bit to show them that you're identifying, you're agonizing with them. We're going to pray. We're going to turn this place into a labor room, beseeching the God of heaven to give us divine deliveries. Would you find someone with whom you can identify and help them and agonize together with us? Let's pray. Let's, let's really pray. God of heaven, God of Elijah, who brought again that boy from the dead, we're begging that you bring people back spiritually from the dead. You'll raise them from their trespasses and sins into newness of life. But only you can do it. God, who sent your only Son in love as a sacrifice for our sins, 
I pray that by the power that raised that same Jesus from the dead, you'll raise our children, our grandchildren from the dead. Right now we cry out, save them, reach them, whatever it takes, God, bring them to yourself. Would you right now just share their names out loud, right where you are, just share their names out loud. God, you hear their names. These are the ones we bring to you. We agonize. We stretch out with Elijah upon these dead bodies. We beg that by the name which is above every name, Jesus Christ, you'd bring these people into your family or back into a relationship with you. Our kids, our grandkids, God, do it for your glory. We need you. Please comfort these family members, these dads and moms, these grandparents. Help them to know what to say, what to do, but help them to keep on praying mightily until they draw their last breath. God, make us a praying people. We believe you. We trust you. We cling to you. And so we claim by faith what you're going to do and await the results according to your divine plan. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, let it be so.